Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, May 6th, 2010, and our guest tonight is John Taylor Gatto. And John, welcome, and thanks so much for being here. A real pleasure, Steve. Thanks for asking me. So one of the listeners in the chat has asked, uh, has, has um, recognized that you're not going to be able to read the questions that they put in the chat. So I will be passing those along as we shift the Q&A. It's hard for me to both do the interview and read the chat as we go along. So please feel free to put your questions in and answer each other's questions during the actual uh, discussion that John and I have. And then when we switch the Q&A, you may need to post them again for me to see them. I apologize for that, but it's my limited ability to truly multitask. Um, tonight's session is sponsored by uh, Illuminate, my employer, and the project I work on is Learn Central, the social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in, and you can use it for free, so we encourage you to come. Coming up on Future of Education, next week, Leonard, who is in the audience, is uh, going to be talking about the Web 2.0 educational revolution. Are we there yet? On the 12th, Charles Fidel on school architecture. And on the 13th, the folks from the Think Global School. Lots of fun interviews coming up. Hope there's something on that list that you find valuable. I think especially related to the subject tonight, uh, the Ted Caldery interview on teachers as partners will be very interesting. Uh, if you missed Seth Godin yesterday morning, that, that um, interview and recording are up on the website. Anna Kamet, Anya Kamenetz from last week on the DIYU book she's written. Uh, also, that recording is up in our good friend Jackie Gerstein and lots of others. Oh, and Robert Epstein uh, on Team 2.0, an interview that uh, John has actually listened to, to my great delight. Okay, I have created a group in bookdiscussions.com for dumbing us down. If there's another book John's written that you would like to start a group on, please do that. I didn't want to be the creator of all of the groups, but I hope you'll come to bookdiscussions.com and start having a conversation there. Also, please do consider coming to Students 2.0 or send your students there, a place for, for students to connect independently with educators outside of their traditional organizations to pursue educational passions. Hope that there, there are some of your students for whom that would be a great fit. On June 26th, the Saturday before uh, ISTE, we have our annual EduBloggerCon, the free unconference for educators around social media. Also this year, the same day, Open Source Con, open source software. Um, in, in fact, we get, we get the fun coincidence of John talking about open source, hopefully a little bit tonight, maybe in a different context. Um, also in November, the Global Education Conference, on November 15th to the 19th. Uh, five days, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all for free. So hope that you'll pencil that into your calendar and uh, we'll keep you informed as details arise. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is participative. Uh, we're now up to 83 people and it's hard to watch the chat with that many people in the room, so do go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout if you'd like to read the chat. At the bottom of the participant window, you can clap, you can do the smiley face, a confused look or a thumbs down. You'll also see a hand with a green up arrow. That's how you would raise your hand and take the microphone. When we go to Q&A, you can actually um, ask John a question through the microphone, which would be a lot of fun. Before you do that, though, do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is configured correctly. Okay, now I'm going to give you a chance to actually indicate on the map where you're listening from, and I'll tell John what we see. Look for the wand at the left of the map with the red star at the end, and then click on that and click on the map. 
so John, I'm seeing a couple from Australia, uh, one from Japan maybe, someone else in Southeast Asia, uh, looks like Germany. Please shout it out in the chat where you're listening from, maybe the time and the temperature. And many, many from the United States. Ontario, Canada, Japan, Philippines. Well, terrific. Again, wherever you're participating from or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you here with us tonight. So John, I've put a picture of you up on the screen. It's that picture of you in front of a blackboard. And because our audience typically has a lot of educators, I figured that was kind of a safe way to bridge the gap. Um, I, I know we have homeschoolers here as well. That must be Seattle, 1991, taken by the Seattle newspaper photographer. And I don't think they used the interview because the local Seattle school establishment was horrified. Well, and I think you get that reaction, at least from what I've read, a fair amount. Um, I'm, I'm interested in this. I, you know, I don't intend to. It's never my intention. But coming from the Scotch-Irish zone of southwestern uh, Pennsylvania, I mean, we were reared to be, let me say, dialectical. Well, I'm glad you've used that word because I think it will come up tonight. John, when you wrote Dumbing Us Down, was it positively reviewed at first? The funny thing is, I didn't actually write Dumbing Us Down. Uh, the, the first chapter, now mind you, I'm 20 years away from the book, but I remember clearly I had to give a, a talk before uh, uh, my school board when I got uh, the New York State Teacher of the Year title. And a student of mine called up and said, what are you going to say? I said, nobody wants to listen to a school teacher talking. And he said, but you owe us, owe us 30 years to kids you had. So I must have worked 72 hours without sleep on on the, the uh, first essay in the book, and I gave it as a talk. I had no intention of ever thinking about school again after 30 years. But almost immediately, what happened was some little magazines reprinted it, and then it got reprinted all over the world. I mean, almost immediately, 700 little publications repeated the talk. And I had a call from India, from Nehru University. And they asked if they could use it as a graduation speech, part of the graduation ceremony. And by the way, did I happen to have anything else, and they might bind it together as a little chapbook. Well, I was embarrassed, really. And for the next, I don't know, three weeks, I sat down pounding away at an old Smith Corona typewriter answering some of my own questions. But the whole book was written in a kind of white heat 
anger and passion, and I expected that to be the end, the absolute end of me ever thinking about school again. The immediate reaction finally electrified me. I got a call from NASA Goddard Space Center saying, can I come down and speak before the engineers and I truly burst out laughing. I said, you're absolutely certain. I said, I haven't spoken to anybody over the age of 13 in the last three decades. But they wanted me to come down. Then the uh, Colorado Librarians Association contacted me, and then the Vice President of the United States and I was off and running. I said to my wife, this will stop soon and we can go to our farm up around Ithaca, New York and be garlic farmers, a lifelong dream. But that was 20 years ago and I've now given uh, keynote speeches in Australia and Budapest, Hungary, and China, in uh, England, and Amsterdam, and Colombia, and South America, and every state in the Union many, many times. And as I've done that, uh, the response has been largely very, very positive, sometimes embarrassingly so, uh, when people write and say that you know, I've changed their life or I've sorted out the chaotic thoughts in them. What I've provided is a narrative quite different from the existing narratives of institutional school history. And I didn't make it up out of whole cloth or out of conspiratorial writing. I simply closeted myself for a long, long time, probably I'm still closeted, reading the most horrifyingly dull books ever written uh, over the last 200 years and getting a very, very clear idea of how we got institutional schooling, which has nothing to do with the popular conception and why it's an outrageous success in spite of all the whining and howls of school reform. We've had seven major national school reforms since 1910, and they've all ended up with school being larger, more expensive, more intrusive on the lives of families and children, and pretty much exactly the same. And there's a good reason for that. I'm not being sarcastic. There's a good reason why schools operate as they do. So John, I'd like to talk about that, and I, I, I want to set the stage a little because the audience that typically comes to these shows falls into a fairly unique category. They're, they're largely educators who, by virtue of the internet, have been given increased voice, and in a lot of ways, they're saying many of the same things that you say. It's going to be interesting tonight to kind of uh, tease out the you know, the moment at which you decided you needed to operate outside of the system. But but in, in advertising the show tonight, I actually quoted from your Wall Street Journal uh, editorial or, or op-ed piece where you talk about 
uh, where you say Daniel learns to read at age four, Rachel at age nine, and then you know you you um, I'm sorry, David, and you adjust David to depend on you, and you identify Rachel as discount merchandise. That could have been written by by any of a dozen people right now I know who are blogging who feel very much a kindred sense of this message. Do you do you want to talk for? Of course, there's, there's a wealth of intelligent and compassionate people involved in worry about the future. I guess that's the name of your your series. What's wrong? I think. Or what what causes a huge amount of wasted energy and very little change is that the the master narrative. Uh, is missing. They act as if just by engineering a better way to do things, that solves the problem. And that superior engineering has been available for thousands of years. There's a reason that it's overridden. So, so John, uh, you mentioned the conspiracy aspect. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around how things happen uh, w without attributing them to a conspiracy. But I think part of the point you're making. Well, Steve, now wait a minute. Well, uh, uh, I don't know. Are you a vegetarian? Am I a vegetarian? No. I have a reason for that. Good. Because when you sink your teeth into a succulent chicken or a beef or a hog, do you actually feel that you're part of a conspiracy against those fellow creatures? Of course you don't. You feel that they are so far down the, the phylogenetic tree or whatever from you that it isn't even worthy of consideration unless you're some kind of tree-hugging nut. Well, the people who put the school institution together thought the very same thing about you and me and our kids. Can I prove that? Of course I can. It's as close as close as your nearest public library or for the uh, bookish volume or your personal library. I know that every school in the United States, for example, every school not only talks about Charles Darwin, but stores some of Darwin's writing on library shelves. And nobody thinks there's anything unusual about that except some religious oddballs, right, who wonder about evolution. Well, how about actually reading what Mr. Darwin wrote? Because I've done that. And if there's anybody in your audience who's derived from an Irish background, for example, I guarantee you that he makes no bones about the Irish being a retarded race, which if it crossbreeds with superior biology, will send evolution marching back into the swirling mists of the dawnless path. Now, doesn't that sound like a radical contention? Let me say that if you pick up Descent of Man, that's the book you want to read, 1871, it's American publication, you will find that not only the Irish, but a great number of the peoples of the world are so inferior biologically that there is no hope 
to educate them. And since they're dangerous, they have to their heads have to be filled with misinformation so they don't murder us all in their beds. Did John Cattell at junior high school English teacher make that up? Well, I'll challenge you to actually read Descent of Man and not have the hair stand up on your head. How about Origin of Species, the great book that changed human history? Isn't the subtitle, The Progress of the Favored Races? Doesn't that imply there are disfavored races? Well, if you were a responsible policymaker and you actually believed that most of the human race was hopelessly biologically retarded and dangerous to the advanced stuff, what would you do if you passed laws to herd them all into institutional schooling? I'm talking about primary research, which obviously very few people do, including the collegiate crowd. Just read what Mr. Darwin actually said, and you wouldn't need to continue this interview. You could, in fact, extrapolate everything you think is is wrong with schooling. Well, it's right from the point of view of favored races and disfavored races. And he's not the only one. How about the great liberal philosopher? Now, there was some sarcasm in my voice when I used the word liberal. Benedict Spinoza, I know you were taught his name is Baruch Spinoza, but he never once, not a single time in his life, called himself Baruch Spinoza. He was Benedict Spinoza. Mr. Spinoza wrote in 1690, a book read by every colonial leader in America, a book called Tractatus Religico-Politicus, in which he said that the overwhelming number of human beings is permanently, murderously irrational. And unless their children can be taken from them and set against one another in meaningless competitions, their heads filled with trash, they're going to murder us all in our beds. Now, that's my addition, but I think Spinoza would, would be smiling from wherever he is at the moment. Is there, it's a hugely influential man in Western history. How about looking at uh, Immanuel Kant's heir for the chair of philosophy at the University of Berlin, a fellow named Johann Fichte, who wrote a series of demands on the Prussian king, I think between 1812 and 1818, but don't only those exact years, that's close enough. And Fichte says pretty much exactly what Spinoza says. He said we've got to Get forced them into compounds, put them under the direction of agents of the state, and never, never allow them to understand how the world really works. And that's how the world got its first successful compulsion schoolings in the North German Principality of Prussia. And from Prussia, now we have this 
curious construction spread all over the world, pretending to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, morality, whatever else. We have millions of kids in science classes who never for an instant would allow them to actually try to generate original scientific experiments. They are to memorize experiments in which the results are all too well known and very, very often propagandized. I mean, we've politicized science through science classes. I mean, obviously, you've got to stop me because I can pretty much go on forever and for the last 20 years on almost a daily basis. I've been somewhere in the world with fine people asking me what's gone wrong. The institution itself has not gone wrong. It's doing what it was set up to do, not hurt people not abuse children. It was set up to be in reciprocity with a corporate economy and a corporate governance. You can't keep a corporate uh, economy alive unless you have a big government. They're two parts of the same creature. And notice that both are arranged uh, on the pyramid or the ladder principle where only the policy people at the top actually know what's going on. Everybody else is a function, and they're judged uh, to be a keeper or a throwaway according to whether they fulfill their function uh, or, or, or not. Uh, I really would welcome the toughest possible questions because I don't allow myself to say anything that I can't, in fact, painfully prove with with masses of documentation. There's nobody listening to you right now. I don't know whether there's 70 or 7,000 listening to you, Steve, right now. There's nobody that's ever made any use at all unless they're crazy, of standardized testing data. If it actually measured the difference in quality among you know, large numbers of people, then wouldn't you, when you hired an architect, a lawyer, a doctor, someone to mow your grass or cut your hair, wouldn't you inquire into their quality? Absolutely nobody even thinks of doing that because regardless of where you believe you are in the debate on standardized testing, you know the information is worthless or you would make use of it. So John, it really helped me when you described that the first goal of an institution is to survive and grow because that helped me at least to kind of emotionally understand that the people who are working in education don't have these goals necessarily, but they are fulfilling the rules. No, 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 they're functionaries. I mean, I hate to use that cool word because I associate it with many, many fine school teachers and even a few administrators, not many, over, over the years. That the paycheck is not 
forthcoming unless you follow orders. I mean, some people define themselves as mavericks, and they probably do a little bit of good by sabotaging the system inherent. But obviously, you can't sabotage it very far without producing a record that you're doing that. For example, my kids who were, you know, from hideous ghettos in New York City just swept the board winning awards that were offered and intended to go to high school students at Stuyvesant or Bronx Science or Special High School. Rather than receiving accolades for that, you know, I was investigated closely, and when I learned that my kids in very ordinary English classes were going to tackle every single play Shakespeare wrote inside of one school year, there was hell of a play. Now, I know that sounds like braggadocio, but the plays are only 4,000 words long, and there's only, I don't know, 38 of them. It's one fairly long book. It's written in, for the most part, in street language. There's nothing formidable about tackling the language if you happen to be in an average class in a ghetto school. Nothing formidable about it at all. But the gifted and talented kids, my blood curdles when I use that disgusting term, they're getting three a year. And imagine what their parents said to the school administration about this lunatic ghetto. So, you know, I don't want to over-personalize this, but since I left teaching in 1991, I've seven days a week around the clock either spoken to myself to research this or traveled somewhere in the world. There's a reason I gave the keynote speech to 10 Australian cities education conventions or to South Korea's national education convention. And it isn't because I have a Harvard PhD. It's that nobody tells the truth about what we're doing, and, and the truth is to let them off the hook. Nobody knows or even cares what we're doing. John, you say that the core academic capacity or capability would, takes less than 100 hours to transmit. So the answer is less school and not more. Do you want to talk a little about that? Sure. Let me, uh, let me deal with... Uh, uh, the mathematical elements first, because those would be the ones I have least experience with. Fortunately, I'm a good friend of Dan Greenberg, who is either the youngest full professor in Barnard College history, or he's one of the youngest. I mean, he was over there at 27 or 28, and when it came time, for he and his biochemist's wife 
to raise their own children, they were horrified about anything that was out there, including private schools. So they started a school 20 miles west of Boston in Framingham, which is now world famous, called the Sudbury Valley School. I've been there many times. At Sudbury, there are no courses. There are no time requirements. People, just as they do in Hampshire College, where my granddaughter goes, people make kids make the courses up they want, and then they solicit one of the staff to either teach them directly or to hire someone to teach them. At that point, the kid concedes all rights. If you want to learn uh, trigonometry or advanced calculus, and Dan taught those things himself, you had to follow the way he most efficiently could do it. If he said 6 a.m. in the morning, and if anyone is late for class, anyone, you'll have to find someone else to teach your calculus. That was the contract freely entered in. Dan told me that the entire math sequence, this brilliant man told me, you know, and himself with a PhD in physics, I think, told me the entire math sequence takes 50 contact hours to transmit to the point where people are self-teaching. And I already knew that as far as language proficiency, speaking, reading, and writing, 50 contact hours will do it, but not if you dragoon unwilling people, force them together in classes, and ring bells in their ears every 44 minutes. No, then nobody can make it work. I, I am sorry, I'm, I'm taking a bit <laughs> between my teeth no, here. No, we're really glad that you are. So, um, you also say that the central purpose of schooling has been to break children away from parents. And you're a strong proponent of the family. No, it's one of the subordinate uh, purposes. The central purpose is to harmonize with the type of mass production economy we have. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller, Mr. Carnegie, Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt were horrified in the 1880s, 1890s that advances in the strength of steel and in uh, abundant energy were making possible for the first time in human history endless production. But it, that what that required was a highly independent population who thought the American dream was an independent livelihood, not a good job, had to be broken to the new way. Or otherwise, the people who put money up to tool and retool corporations wouldn't risk it with an unstable population. Well, who makes the population unstable? And we'll translate that to mean that they think they're sovereign, you know, uh, they're, they're liberty-driven, all those good things. Well, 
the churches do that, they were rather easy to get rid of and to force that to the margins. Parents, a lot harder to get rid of. You have to follow Julius Caesar's uh, dictum, uh, divide and conquer. You have to divide the kids from their families or otherwise the older American traditions of liberty and independence are going to be transmitted by those people and you're going to have a mess on your hands. And so what, Andrew Carnegie admitted what we're going to have to sacrifice is the tremendous inventiveness of the American population, which produces about 90% of all the patents on planet Earth. We're going to have to sacrifice that in exchange for the term in, uh, 100 years ago was social efficiency. But what he meant was, that you efficiently follow the orders of the boss, look upon yourself as a human resource to be discarded the moment that you no longer are part of the policy design. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the, one of the great ironies, Steve, and it really saddens me, is from about 1882, let's say 1915, in that rough period, these arguments are laying all over the surface of serious American journalism. I don't mean, you know, the Daily News or USA Today, but I'm talking about the serious journals and newspapers were for this stuff, openly being debated. This is what American foundations were created and legalized to further this project of creating a kind of great machine out of the population uh, aimed at uh, the best material life, and I'll give them credit for everybody. You know, that of course in their theory meant uh, enormously uh, lucrative lives for the people at the top who had to think of the idea. But Carnegie knew that what would happen Remember, Carnegie was working full-time in a garment factory when he was seven or eight years old, having begged his parents not to waste his time in schooling. And they were smart enough to let little Andy wind thread on bobbins all day long. By the age of 12, you know, he was working for the Pennsylvania Railroad as a telegrapher, and by 19, he was a partner of the president of the railroad. Please don't say, oh, that was okay for Andrew Carnegie, but, you know, we can't all be, of course we can. It's almost the record of early American history. You only need to read French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America to see how stunned de Tocqueville is at the enormous inventiveness, creativity, productivity, independence, powerful reading ability of snort-nosed American kids and their vulgar parents, because he really kind of drew a line at our our manners, but but as far as our potency intellectually, 
uh, you know, he, he would acknowledge that ancient Greece couldn't hold a candle to, to late colonial and early federal America. I mean, those powers could not be allowed to survive, and the immense promise of endless energy in the form of coal and machinery that would work right around the clock. You couldn't realize both those streams. And Carnegie said reluctantly, we're going to have to, you know, build this corporate order by suppressing the original American gas. I mean, all those guys were at first very open about it. As soon as resistance began to appear, they became more circumspect. Uh, and today, you know, you have no idea what any politician. I mean, there is not a two-party system here. We've got a one-party system for a long, 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 long time. You only need to look at the uh, uh, the political contributors are identical among the candidates. I was just writing when uh, when your show began that talk I'm going to be giving uh, in Salem, Oregon, in a few days, and I was writing about uh, the German um, inspiration for this whole thing, and I was trying to touch enough bases that the audience who would uh, formerly have not really thought about this much, could see how intensely Germanic the kind of institutional schooling we have now, which replaced a free-form, open-source kind of schooling uh, that, that we had when we produced 90% of the world's patents. Anyway, that in the presidential election of 2004, I was astonished this was a front page every single day during the election, that the two candidates running against one another, supposedly representing different points of view, I don't even need to name them, were both graduates of the same university in virtually the same year, their terms overlapped, and both of them were members of a German-inspired fraternity that only allowed 15 members in per year, so that, you know, in a century, there would only be 1,500 of those people. And, and, and when we look back at... Horace Mann, you know, we're talking the 1850s now, his imaginary trip to Prussia where he comes back and reports the splendors he's seen. Mann dawdled in Europe. He never got there while the schools were operating, but he couldn't bear to tell his sponsors that he had screwed up. So so he, he wrote the famous... Uh, is it the seventh letter? I think it's the seventh letter to the Boston School Committee in which he urges them to take on the German pattern because it has these dazzling outcomes. Uh, and from, from there on, we have, when people find these things, find these things, difficult to fit into the narratives in their head. It's largely because 
They've been well schooled. Every single American college presidency by 1890 was under the direction of a man who held a German PhD degree. Virtually every government agency was under the direction. So you can see how German thinking would spread north, south, east, and west very rapidly since the president and his handpicked staff could confer favors, fame, economic favors on the students who thought most Germanly. Uh, John Dewey was one of the few exceptions of a major American schoolman who hadn't got his PhD in Germany. However, he slipped in under the wire because he had taken his PhD at Johns Hopkins for a man whose PhD had been earned in Germany. You know, so by the time we reached the 20th century, you know, well, I'm going to give you the ultimate evidence of this. And once again, what I try to do is give you evidence that's easily accessible. If you'll simply read one of the most influential books, probably in human history, a book written by 36-year-old Adolf Hitler while he was in prison, the name's Mein Kampf, you'll see that before he was Adolf Hitler, Hitler is writing about the most German nation on earth, not being Germany, it's the United States, he said. They're the most purely German consciousness that exists. And we must try to imitate them. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that you don't find it around on the shelves. His pains of praise for Henry Ford uh, maybe another reason you don't find Mein Kampf on the shelves. And certainly you never see the picture that has the 10-foot portrait of Henry Ford behind his official desk in Berlin. I guess you shouldn't see that. Anyway, we, what we're dealing with here is an apparatus that was put together for perfectly rational reasons, and it found that politics to allow the romantic uh, uh, narratives about schooling, you know, so everyone has an equal chance, all that kind of nonsense, to continue. That, that rhetoric is what school policy makers conceal themselves behind. But what they actually care about is that there's not an overproduction of people who move in one or another of the economic arenas so that the, uh, uh, that the, uh, the holders of privilege in this arena aren't jeopardized. I mean, the word competition, I can brings a big smile to my face. John D. Rockefeller openly and publicly denounced competition as a, as a, a childish fool's errand. There's nobody in their right mind doesn't spend and move heaven and earth with a competition. 
isn't that so? Isn't that why the same people uh, support anyone who's running for president, regardless of their party? Naturally, Ralph Nader's left out. But John, so you would enjoy the chat, which is full of passion because it includes an 11-year-old girl who's actively participating. Um, you talk about the fact that uh, you know systems will do anything to perpetuate themselves and that when things aren't going well, the system says, we need more of the system. So you chose to, to leave the system. We're getting questions in the chat. What, sh what should people do? What, what should they do to constructively help build the future? Well, first I chose to sabotage the system. And I successfully was able to do that for 15 years by concealing uh, what I really was up to in the classroom. It's not hard to do. Most teachers dress like boys and girls. So I would wear a three-piece blue pinstripe Brooks Brothers suit. And most teachers try to avoid onerous duty, like lunchroom duty. I would volunteer for it. So for a long time, uh, nobody in school was was absolutely certain what I was doing, except that I had an outrageous following among parents. Well, that happened because in the schools I went to when I was a boy, no teacher would think of not visiting the home of every single person they taught. It was expected of them. So when I became a teacher, I did that, and I struck up alliances, really with thousands, hundreds of parents. And those alliances produced uh, an abundance of opportunities uh, for the kids. But I never could have, I mean, physically, I wouldn't be physically strong enough or imaginative enough to think of all the opportunities. So, so I had this abundance of resources at my disposal. And I never set out to do this, but it occurred naturally because when the kids were excited about what they were doing, you know, what they were doing was largely individualized. Uh, and I taught them what the Princeton Review teaches you. But it's very, very easy. It's pathetically simple to fix your standardized test score. All you have to know is the logic of how the questions are constructed. And whether you've ever read the books or not, you'll automatically do well on the standardized tests. Uh, Adam Robinson, who is a co-founder of Princeton Review, and is a friend of mine, uh, Adam Robinson wrote a book called What Smart Students Know. It's Random House. Any teachers listening, please get a copy of it. There. And that way you don't have to alienate your kids, drilling them endlessly on standardized test questions when Robinson will show you that you can pass the test without reading the books. Now, I'm being deliberately uh, hyperbolic there, but I'm really close to the truth. They're a racket as well as anything else, as well as book buying. 
How on earth is it possible, Steve, that in a coal miner's steel worker's uh, school in a small city, 4,500 people, about 50 miles from Pittsburgh, during World War II, that we were reading, not, not a simplified version, we were reading Caesar's Gallic Wars in sixth grade in translation, and then in ninth grade, the school offered an option of reading it in Latin, which I took. If I knew you folks listening better, I, I, I could recite at least the first 20 lines of Gallic Wars that we read in seventh grade, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Now, I hope there's somebody out there saying, but what does that have to do with modern life? Well, let me try to explain. We have exactly one specimen in global literary history of the most powerful man in the world who's also the wealthiest man in the world talking to you about how his inner thought processes work. Could anybody be stupid enough not to see the value of that? Would you ever get Bill Gates talking that way today? And of course, Gates has no power at all. He has a lot of money. Uh, he's a patsy like the rest of them. So, so the reason I came to my to formulate the guiding principle that changed my teaching lines, which, which was the artificial extension of childhood. I was talking about that since 1980 because I had altered my classroom practice to drop the idea not only that adolescence doesn't exist, that past the age of seven, you work against yourself and your children by believing the stage theories of human development. It's as simple a matter as dropping those as finding 90 days later a revolution has taken. But as long as you supply something worthwhile. Doing, how did I learn that? Because I'm so smart. No, because the schools I grew up with never told anyone that schooling was the ultimate importance for a young person. Certainly, they tried to make it important, but they constantly talked about the great thinkers and doers who never any school at all. So we have the first admiral in the American Navy. Uh, Fair, David Farragut, he's in charge of a warship at 12 or 13. We have Edison dropping out of school, heading west a thousand miles from home, and, and, and during a time he's making a living as a train boy, you know, getting coffee for people or whatever. He's 12. He's already started three businesses that are producing streams of revenue for him. Now jump to modern times. Look at Warren Buffett. First profitable business at age six. By the time he's 12 or 13, he's got five streams of revenue coming in. 
Shouldn't every one of your kids have the option of doing that? All we ask kids to do is just delay taking your turn. And when the right moment comes, you'll be glad. Well, if you arrive at 18 without taking your turn, you can forget ever getting into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Stanford, because I sat for an hour with the admissions director of Harvard and another hour with the admissions director of Princeton. And both of them told me that standardized test scores and grade point averages have either no or a very little influence on who they pick. They said, we pick people with records of proven excellence, and grades and test scores aren't sufficient evidence of this. You have to present a record of accomplishment. You started a business. You started a charity. You sailed around the world alone. Is that fanciful? Why does I speak to you? There's three. There's one. Two girls from Australia who set out about six months ago, one fourteen and one sixteen, to sail around the world alone. And I'm friendly with a seventeen-year-old New Yorker, kicked out of high school, by the way, who sailed around the world alone and has lived a very nice life simply from having done that. Uh, all around us right now is an invisible universe. It's not large, but it's in every state of people who know how the world works and how kids develop correctly, and their kids are already staking out the terrain. They, they're not worried about, uh, about college apps. John? Look at Gates himself. Is he not a college dropout? Look at Gates' partner, Paul Allen. Is he not a college dropout? Look at uh, Steve Wozniak. Is he not a college dropout? Look at Steve Jobs. Is he not a college dropout? Look at Michael Dell. Is he not a college dropout? Why don't we talk about these things? Are we crazy? <laughs> John, I'm gonna, we've got limited time. I'm giving Maria the mic. Quite, quite a way. Maria, would you like to take the microphone? Sure. Hi, John. It's very nice uh, listening to you and talking in the context of your conversation. If you could only uh, see, maybe you can see now what we talked about here in the chat. It's a very lovely, lively conversation. So. The question we have is, so suppose we have a small group of people who are ready for the change. We understand the history. We are prepared. We are ready to go now. What do we start from? Oh, wonderful question, and I will try to answer very specifically. First of all, I think you have to abandon changing the system. The system is the living, beating heart of the American economy, and it is not going to change easily, and it's not going to change in, in anyone listening's lifetime. I mean, there'll be small cosmic. That doesn't mean you can't cause a, a, a revolution in your own family, in your own group, 
uh, in your own neighborhood, and it's that's happening everywhere. First, you have to start with what really matters. If you say high grades in uh, English or uh, physics or social studies or math matter, you've been misled. No such thing exists as English or math or social studies. You've got to get down to what the world pays off on, what family life pays off on. I'm going to specify in just a moment. Let me start with a handful of these things, and you'll see at least the ground I'm plowing. You'll easily be able to continue this. Out of the 50 or so studies of high intelligence that I've read, there's probably only one characteristic in which all agree mark high intelligence and superior insight, and that is the ability to concentrate, to shut out everything else, to ignore time constraints, and simply to you know, merge with the task you're doing, concentration. Now, take yourself to the best public school that you could even imagine, and you will find that every 42 minutes a bell or a buzzer or a horn goes off, that inside the classroom two or three times a period there's an announcement over the loudspeaker, another two or three times somebody pounds on the door as a messenger. You know, several children have to uh, empty their bladders. These are like workshops in anti-concentration. I'm amazed anybody survives 12 years of this kind of training who can concentrate very well. Now think of the characteristic that the world pays off biggest on, absolutely biggest on, and this includes the sciences. It's the arts of association. If you can swim easily into any kind of human situation and you can win the respect of others and the friendship of others uh, and you feel good about that, you don't actually know how to do, have to do anything else. You will end up the CEO. That's why my uncle who didn't have a high school diploma ended up the CEO of Rockwell Manufacturing Company. Uh, he was a horrible student, but uh, he could charm the pants off anybody. And he happened to charm the pants off Al Rockwell in a bar. You know, the next thing we knew, he had 10,000 employees. He had only been a steel worker prior to that. So, so uh, you, know, you have to read my next book there. About him. Think of expression. That probably is what fits under uh, the charge laid on English classes. Well, you can break expression into uh, literacy, let's say, into the 
active literacies and the passive literacy. The passive literacy, reading, of course, is extremely, extremely valuable. Not on its lowest levels. That's only good to, to read a list of uh, instructions from the boss. But if you can become an associate of the greatest minds in human history, I mean, you're soaring already. But schools don't bother with high-level literacy. They want Dick and Jane, or they want Jack London. All that other stuff can wait, right? Now let me talk about the kind of literacy that was actually a crime in colonial America to teach. Now it's not a crime, but nobody teaches it. There was an expression no longer used deliberately called active literacy, and that dealt with public speaking and writing. The one-room schoolhouse tradition in America was heavily invested in the active literacies. With an active literacy talent, you can recruit followers and associates. If you can read well, you're locked up in your head. How much time does the best public school you can imagine spend on public speaking? The answer is close to zero. How much on, on persuasive writing? Well, 2 or 3 percent. They're what mark off the movers and shakers in the world from the people who stew and say, I'm not getting enough offers. Now we have concentration, association, expression. How about style? If you don't have a personal style, the number of opportunities available to you is sharply constricted. Is it possible to teach personal style? It's pathetically easy to do if you don't teach it. Style comes from an exaggeration of, of either speech or behavior or both. I mean, if you think of the comedians that you might follow, their exaggeration is so extreme that you laugh at it. But Cutting that back to a more moderate, uh, personalized expression, it's the way people pay attention to you. So they don't get up and go out of the room and say, oh, boy, I don't ever want to come to this house again. Well, you learn style, all of us do, through play in all formal situations. Style is inimical to the operation. I mean, you don't want kids who are exaggerating, experimenting with personalized speech or personalized behavior. You're trying to make them a homogenous collective. And to the extent you do that, to the extent the kid goes from school to home to homework, you know, you'll get somebody who may well end up with a good job under the direction, I'm talking about the sciences now, under the direction of somebody who can 
cut an attractive figure in policy talks, talks. The rest of them are flunkies. They're functionaries. But it's pretty easy to first introduce the idea of style to kids and, and then tell them. I mean, I taught exclusively 13-year-old kids, some 12, some 14, for 30 years. And the minute they trust you, you know, you can say, I, 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 I would challenge every one of you to teach to say this about once a week. At any moment, you may politely ask me, why are we doing this? And if I can't answer to your satisfaction, I mean, you have to agree with me that I know why we're doing this, that I have a purpose, then I'm cutting you loose to self-teach, as long as your mother agrees with it. I was amazingly successful doing that. How about physical courage? If you arrive at adulthood without physical courage, you're in for an awful lot of torment for the rest of your life because you will be in a number of menacing situations where you have to think clearly or challenging situations. You know, and no one will hang around a whiner or a coward. Why don't we tell kids who whine and are cowardly that? If someone beats you up for your lunch money, you're to fight back. Strike them on the point of their nose. If you're lucky, you'll break their nose and they'll never come near you again. But at least they'll know that your quarter is going to come at a price for them. How about health? The schools are the principal factory of diabetes and heart disease. There are epidemics of both those things in the United States, and they have appeared in children as young as four and five now. I mean, diabetes, it's not a great secret. It comes from immobility and insufficient diet. Heart disease, pretty much from the same things. Do schools immobilize children? And I know some of you are saying, well, how could they do it any other way? Well, at least it's at the cost, you ought to be honest with yourself, of hundreds of thousands of gruesome deaths every year, expense of bankrupting the families. Do you arrive at 18 and suddenly wish not to be immobile? For most of your day, I don't think so. So now what I've given you, and this is hardly uh, comprehensive. If if I set out with a class, well, if I was an English teacher or a mother homeschool, it wouldn't matter. And I would say you're going to learn the arts of association, the arts of active literacy how to concentrate, you're going to develop a style, you're going to have some chance to practice physical courage. Uh, it, could we not bend history or English or science or math around actually teaching something that really, of course we could. John, I don't know what your time and is. And I did that for 20 of the 30 years I taught. John, I don't know what your time is like. I know we have at least one other person with a raised hand and lots in the chat. Do you need an excuse to go?
No, 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 no. This is, this is my pleasure. I mean, I've arrived at the ripe old age of 75, and no man in my family lives beyond 78. So, so I would like to leave behind the world a little better. <laughs> I do want you to... But I did this for... Well, I, I only meant to say that the reason I arrived in 1980 at this expression, the artificial extension of childhood, which I, 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 I beat my class over the head with, I mean, on a weekly basis, my classes, was that by trying to substitute uh, worthwhile activity and projects, and, and I drew those from American history. By substituting those, I saw that I, mean, I picked 90 days. But in 90 days, I hardly had any discipline problems. I had an enthusiastically helping a parent cohort. Uh, my life was better. It was more interesting. And I was learning an awful lot from what the kids were learning and teaching me. So uh, for the balance of my teaching for 11 years, and sometimes some public talks, I would call the talk the artificial extension of childhood. My Harper's cover essay from a few years ago was titled that, but Harper's decided to change it and call it Against School. It's a principle that's so potent it would work for any of you. If your kid that you're working with it's been taught to consume your opinions, the opinions of textbooks. If they're, if they're being taught to memorize the dots, then you are causing long-term harm that may, past a point, have no cure, you know. But to, to connect the dots into new patterns is what the best private education does. They don't raise anybody to get a good job. You want an independent livelihood. If you end up having to settle for a good job through character weakness or lack of it, all right. But at least you had a fighting chance to write your own script through life. Isn't it obvious from the the layoffs and uh, terminations in the last couple of years, that there are no good jobs. That's an illusion, too. John, I'm going to give the mic to Gabriel. Gabriel, I think you know what to do. Click on that larger microphone button at the bottom of the participant window to, to speak. OK, we're not hearing from Gabriel, so I'm going to give the mic to Mindchus. Same drill. There you go. Yeah. Hi. I think you can hear me. Just over here. Just give me a nod if you can hear me. Something. Can you hear me? Yep. I just want to say, John, uh, thank you very much for getting up and for sharing, for putting a lot of thought into what you've talked about today, and certainly tied that back to. Uh, evidence that uh, that you've seen and noticed. Um, I, I'm very much um, uh, 
I'm not an educator, I see myself as a leader and I see everyone else that I meet as a leader as well if they want to be and think of themselves as that. So uh, I just want to say thank you and well done for presenting some new ideas. I've been fascinated with some of the chat on the side which uh, seems to have gone um, around a number of issues that, uh, that are quite very broad and some of them very specific. But just want to say thank you for a great uh, sharing today, John, and, uh, and giving me some great food for thought. Oh, thank you, Gabriel. You're from Perth, aren't you? I, I'm actually from Canberra. I, 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 are you from no, Perth? No, I'm from Canberra, 10 minutes from the uh, heart of our government here. But I'm a leadership coach, John, and I'm setting up a global business for leaders to connect all over the world. And I believe that a teacher, a child, all of us are leaders and as long as we remember that and inspire each other to learn and think about those environments, the right bells, you know, um, the, right, the right things to put our minds in the right place, yeah. we can grow and I, just, I feel that from you today. So thank you very much. You've inspired me. Well, thank you. I've spoken in Canberra and I enjoyed it very much and uh, my acquaintance with your cane toads. <laughs> That's the Queens. We've got those up in Queensland. We've just got kangaroos here. But thank you very much and, um, and I, I look forward to uh, connecting again and hearing more of your work and um, just uh, the legacy you're leaving with what you're doing is fabulous. So thank you. John, did you want to talk about your thank movie you. at all? I can talk about the obstacles in the path. Uh, when, when I began to distill what uh, 20 years of travel and thinking about this, what it costs in terms of time, to, it, it struck me that people who have lives to lead are compelled to rely on the information that official sources give them. And I said, and yet I could write 50 books and people involved in an active life, they, it's simply the wrong medium. So. Uh, a former student of mine who started the New York and Poets Cafe in New York City decided we would make a movie and there we ran into a bit of trouble. We easily raised uh, a certain sum of money, not enough to make it but enough certainly to get started. But my my friend said, and I've come to believe he's right, that if it's simply a powerful documentary. It's going to be watched by true believers. They'll all nod their heads, peace, but there are dozens of those out there already. They don't make the slightest difference. He said we'd have to do a full-length feature film in color with animation and provide an indigestible lump that the school would you know have to wrestle with ever after and it would spread like uh, wildfire on the internet as kids saw that their agonies were being respected so we worked hard on a script for that movie and I was just delighted with it and when I saw 
that he worked out the budget that would have to have a minimum of $6 million. And this is even with big Hollywood stars like, like, like uh, Jennifer, uh, oh, Jennifer, Jennifer, not Jennifer Aniston, but another pretty Jennifer, uh, had agreed to do voiceovers. I mean, we had a lot of support. The editor of Harper's Magazine, which in the States is a well-respected uh, intellectual magazine. But $6 million, now you're talking about, unless you know how to use the Internet, you're talking about investors, each one of which has an agenda, a stake. Hours, days have gone into sitting and presenting. We even have a sample of, of the film. But, see, I would have been content to condense some of the things I'm saying, to give a different narrative, to document and let people take it from there. But but my uh, my partner, my former student, actually wanted to make an impact, and I mean an impact that would change things from the film itself would cause trouble that would never go away. And we have just found it impossible to raise that sum of money. I mean, we raised a quarter of a million dollars. That would be enough to make uh, a fine documentary. But he's unwilling to proceed. And he's my director, <laughs> my tech expert. So, so that that's where we are. But but the principle of finding an idiom that other people can easily uh, come to terms with, not because they're dumb, but because they live lives. You know, I've like a tea bag been steeped in school matters now for. 30, 40, nearly 50 years, and that's not getting my own time locked up. So, so I, I, I'm like an addict, but I do try in, in, in anticipation of someday getting to make this film. I try to refine the different elements uh, so that uh, I think if I sat down with somebody for five hours over two days, what, what it took me 50 years to learn, I could transmit about 70% of it enough that people could self-teach from that point. A whole lot of the wonderful energy that's loose in, oh, let me call it school reform, uh, is it, wasted because the assumptions are incorrect. For example, take reading. It's not a huge problem, right, in quotation marks. I mean, what, $50 billion spent in the United States alone? Well, how does that square with the fact that Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America said that the universal level of literacy in the United States is awe-inspiring, universal, that is, Taxi drivers, you know, boatmen, everybody. 
Is there any further evidence that that's so? Well, why don't you look at the best-selling books that were around in the United States long before we had systematic schooling, or that many sections had schooling at all? Take Last of the Mohicans, for example. I know that many of you have seen that as a film. Uh, you know, about the colonial period in America and, you know, Indian tribes, stuff like that. But pick up the actual book, make sure it's an uncut version, and you'll get an instant headache. It's jam-packed full of 200-word-long sentences, periodic sentences that run backwards, learned dissertations on science and politics and everything under the sun. College students today at fine universities have a great deal of difficulty reading Last of the Mohicans, even though it's extremely well written and the story's cracking good. It's a measure of just how far schools have blown our brains so slowly and incrementally that we've not noticed of it. If you have like three minutes here, I have something in front of me that I think all of you would more than appreciate. You could use it as a specific medicine against against the schools you're familiar with that you're trying to reform. I have in front of me now notes that I made from a 1937 popular magazine that was available in the United States on the newsstands. It's called the Amateur Craftsman's Encyclopedia of Things to Make, 1937 cost 15 cents, 342 pages long. And what I want to read you is what a 10-year-old boy was expected to undertake in one of those uh, uh, projects. This is for a 10-year-old boy. This is called Building a Speedy Racing Schooner. And here are the instructions. First, of course, you have to assemble the parts. Right? Plywood, dowel, screw eyes, copper wire, number 20 brass escutcheon pins, tiny enough for the hinges on Barbie's coffin. The book says, don't buy glue, don't waste your money. You can melt old toothbrush handles and it becomes acetone. So now you have your glue to put this together. Now this is just one paragraph from putting it together. Recall, first you have to make the part. Spring the sides apart and slip the lower ribs into place at their proper stations. Set the ribs in so the bevel begins at the edge of the side. Drive an escutcheon pin into each rib from each side. Make the inside keel from quarter-inch square wood. Fit it inside. The inside stem in the notches of the lower ribs and spring it over to an inside of the stern is shown. Now here's the most alarming 
part of the instructions, you're going to make the keel out of molten lead, which I assume not to mention a chunk of lead and some pretty hot fire and, and some danger to your 10-year-old skin. But that's how you cast this. This is one of hundreds of things a 10-year-old boy was expected to make 73 years ago. I mean, we have been dumbed down so profoundly that this seems to be science fiction rather than a popular magazine for boys. John, are you talking at all about your Bartleby idea? Yes. Yes. Now, the Bartleby Project, anyone's willing to join, just keep in mind that it can't have a leader. The standardized testing empire, you know, $50 billion here. This is the glue that holds institutional schooling together. This is the justification for assigning rewards and prestige and so on. So. I said, how would we ever dismantle that? Obviously, there are eloquent arguments and spokespeople who point out the damage that standardized testing do, not least because it communicates a lie. People with high standardized test scores do not become the leaders in any field at all except the ministry. Let's not get into why that might be, be so. It, it, this is a meaningless exercise. The scores don't correlate. I learned that by accident when I kept wondering why the people who did so well in standardized tests weren't the best readers or or dialecticians or writers in my class. And it happened so, so systematically that I knew the test wasn't measuring what it said it was me measuring. So in 30 years of thinking about how to break this, I have come to the conclusion that no top-down uh, project will work because so many livelihoods, so many fortunes are tied up in keeping this thing afloat, not, not least of which is the bubbleocracy of institutional schooling itself, which offers, you know, you hear the schools improve. They don't know if they've improved. I mean, they have higher standardized test scores. And if the scores don't correlate with anything, what exactly does that mean? In fact, let me ask you the great question, spread it all over the world. If everyone, everyone got a perfect standardized test score and had a perfect 4.0 grade point average, exactly what difference would that make, let's say, to Greece? or Spain, or Portugal, or Italy, or even Germany, or France, or England. It wouldn't make any difference at all, because those things don't connect with 
anything except you produced evidence that you were obedient. You memorized what you were told to memorize. That's how you do well that's Yes, it's no wonder they don't correlate with anything. Anyway, uh, so I'm reading a short story that, that has driven me insane all my life. I first read it in high school. It's by Herman Melville called Bartleby the Scrivener. I reread it again in college. I wrote it in graduate college. At no point did I understand why on earth anyone would write such a story, and subsequently, as I grew older, I would read it at intervals. Suddenly, I reread it, and the, the, the cloth dropped from my eyes. Bartleby's about a lowly office worker. He's a human uh, photocopy machine in the days when they didn't have those things. In a law office on Wall Street. So somebody wants three copies of something they've written, Bartleby, write, you know, give me three copies. One day, Bartleby's a mercy little guy, just barely getting along on starvation wages. One day the boss uh, asks Bartleby to do something, and Bartleby looks at him and he says, I would prefer not to. Now, he doesn't know, he doesn't explain. He just hopes the person, the boss, thinks he knows he's having a bad moment, goes away. And the next day, the boss asks him to go to the post office and pick up the mail. And Barbie says, I would prefer not to. It's that wonderfully charming, old-fashioned, I would prefer not to. Never with any passion behind it. Well, this goes on for a couple of days. And finally, the boss says, Bartleby, I can no longer retain you in my employ. So here's your severance, and don't come to work tomorrow. Or ever after, Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. <laughs> now what do we do here? The, the story goes on for a few more pages. Finally, the boss has him arrested and thrown in prison in lower Manhattan, and his conscience bothers him, because other than that, Bartleby's been, you know, a polite and a faithful worker, so he goes through jail, and the jailer says uh, he won't eat any food, and so the guy leaves money behind for Bartleby to get specially good and tasty food, but he comes back, and Bartleby will not eat anything. And when the boss says, you must eat, you now know what Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. He starves to death. And that's the end of the story. Well, I don't want to spoil the fun if you try to figure out what that means. But when you do, it's exactly like a cloak is dropped from your eyes. And you see what liberty and independence really means, that you choose what you affirm and what you deny. And as long as you don't trample on somebody else in doing that, if you, if you want a free society, you will 
accept everybody's right to do that. If you're a school teacher, you'll teach everybody to do that. Plato said thousands of years ago, nothing of value comes from coercion. I believe that too, having worked 30 years in a compulsory school institution. Nothing of value comes from coercion. So the Barbie Project is an attempt to spread the idea sooner or later what I hope will happen is some of these wonderfully crazed kids who know how to you know, multiply themselves on the Internet will spread the idea around. It has to contain the instruction that you don't defy, you don't shake your fist. You write on the standardized test. I'd prefer not to take this test. If 5% of the people taking the test did that, I think the floor would come out from under the school institution. If 10% did it, you'd have a, an overnight revolution because nothing could be done. Nothing can be done anyway. Three years ago, maybe four years ago, the mothers in Scottsdale, New York, one of the wealthiest communities on the planet, refused to allow the kids to take the standardized test for one day. It was headlines, and then the story vanished from the paper. That made no sense to me. That was such anomalous behavior that I knew what had happened. The state couldn't afford to tackle these accomplished women publicly and have the public hear their arguments. So a deal had to be cut where their kids were excused from the test as long as they didn't try to proselytize other kids there. But, I mean, it's, it's ripe. It's, it's one of the Achilles heels in, in this vast uh, employment project we call institutional schooling. That's the Bartleby Project, and I hope right away somebody <laughs> is going to just tell one kid to do that. You're certainly getting a reaction in the chat, John. Hey, you talk about the need for a really loud dialogue about education. And uh, have you thought about ways that that could be started? Do we need some kind of an education declaration? Do we need some? Uh, it's going to have to come from the bottom up because the thing is so deeply interwoven with, with the economy that now we're no longer talking about reforming schooling. We're talking about unemploying huge numbers of people, millions of people. It's not just school teachers and school administrators. How about the uh, cafeteria workers? How about the people who drive the trucks that bring the school books to the book room? How about the people who write those books and print those books? How about the people who build the grotesque furniture or make the chalk? We're talking about probably the largest single component 
in the economy. It's a jobs project as well as all the other things it is. And now you jeopardize. If there are any school administrators out there, they know what the public doesn't know. They're outrageously overpaid. If they live in a small town or a small city, they're paid at the very top of the income scale, right along with doctors and the best lawyers. Uh, and they're pretty highly placed in large cities as well. I mean, this is this is not a simple debate about phonics versus the word in reading. And furthermore, you know, U.S. may have been the uh, U.S. and Germany and Great Britain probably were the seedbeds of this, but now it's. It's all over. I've spoken in uh, in China. I, I did the keynote for Seoul, South Korea. I've spoken in Asia quite a number of times, and I can tell you the attitude toward their schools is clearly a religious commitment. You know, it's left pragmatics way behind. You know, status in the society comes from from this. So the number of suicides in Japanese schools ought to be published as some, some prominent place for everybody to see. You know, whole segments of the job world Observe for people who play ball in school, not for the smartest people, not for the most talented people, for the people who play ball in school. Most government jobs outside the the policy fringe, which they wouldn't dream of giving to somebody, you know, addicted to schooling, uh, you know, they're reserved. On what grounds? I mean, it ought to be challenged in the Supreme Court, except for the fact that the decision, you know, is a foregone conclusion. So why bother? I mean, we're we're deeply submerged now, and I think other than over a pitcher of beer or a pot of tea, thinking about system. Alteration uh, oughtn't to occupy your main time. It's how to sabotage the system locally. If enough people do that, as as the unschoolers among the homeschooling fringe are doing that, I mean they've restored the uh, the. Uh, Breakaway American talent for uh, invention and creativity. I wouldn't want my well-schooled kid to be in competition. I've spoken in every state at the state uh, homeschool convention, usually given the keynote all over the states, many times in some states. Uh, and I can tell you, these are impressive people who. Who are only dimly aware of of the narratives the rest of us have been conditioned to follow. Uh, there's not enough of them 
yet, but pitch in. Contribute your kids. If you're a school teacher, sabotage the system while you smile at the principal. Don't shake your fist. Don't wave signs. Never teach a lesson without giving the people the right to say, why are we doing this? And if your answer is, because I have no choice, they're making me do it, give them an option out. Make sure their mother agrees, too. John, it seems to me that a message that you don't say directly in the book, but I felt personally, was that we need to take back uh, lives of dignity, meaning, and significance. Is, would that be a fair synopsis? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Well, I gave you that list, association, expression, concentration, style, physical courage, health. Uh, justified pride and dignity how could you even conceive of a good life without those things? Make those your birthright, whether the context you're in agrees with you or not. Do not let people easily insult you. I'll tell you, and this will be a name many of you know, there's an excellent Hollywood uh, actor named Danny Hedaya. He's had a few leads. He's usually uh, a solid uh, second lead in movies. Danny Hedaya was a school teacher in my school, taking acting lessons, but he was a school teacher. What sprung him loose? A good one, too. The kids liked him. I saw some of his classes, and I said, I'd be worried if I spend some time with this guy. One day, the principal, after principal's fashions, took an arrogant tone ordering Danny Hedaya in the main office with all the teachers around to deliver something in a timely fashion. And I'll remember this to my dying day. Danny Hedaya, currently a millionaire Hollywood actor, said, if you want respect, give it. And he threw his papers down wherever he had, walked out the door. It was the last the school ever saw of him. But three or four years later, he was the lead in... Uh, in a film with Alicia Silverstone, oh, I don't know, uh, Clueless. That makes me sound like he's seen Clueless. But otherwise, I'm sure if he'd been treated with some respect, he would have stayed. But if more teachers did that, if you didn't feel so desperately wedded to a paycheck, and a little friendly treatment. You'd get it as you do rather than as a favor given by 
you know, some flunkies, because that's what school administrators are. Sorry, I don't mean to insult any of you in the audience, but face it, you know, you're as replaceable as the janitor is. Probably you're more replaceable. There are 20 people waiting for your job. And if you tried to be a leader, although some administrators are called that in the news, if you actually tried to be a leader and you deviated from systematic practices, I mean, you'd be out on your ear very quickly. John, it's 9.45 New York time. I can't believe how generous you've been in continuing to speak to us. But I want to, get, I want to close so, so that you don't, uh, we're not keeping you up too late. There's a lot of clapping right now. And I'm, you can't see in the participant area, but there's a, an ability to clap. Uh, we've had a number of people who have just been so delighted that you've been willing to come on and talk to us. I, I think uh, we're. I'm clapping for your audience that they would spend hours of their time, you know, coming and participating in, in the, the, these forums you do. I mean, there's special people who do more than, than is required. And th those are the people who are going to fish us out of the soup eventually. Not my lifetime, but well, I, I, I really appreciate that. And they are definitely, this audience is a terrific audience, and they're great people. And I think we are watching something very interesting happen, is, is there's an opportunity for grassroots discussions around education. And, and seeing your ideas really resonate right now with people who are passionate and who care. So uh, great thanks to you, John. Uh, we're all hoping that you go well past 78. Uh, we're hoping that, that somehow the well, uh, you know, what will give me a better chance to do that is if some of you buy my books, <laughs> Weapons of Mass Instruction. I guarantee it, but I, I don't have website up on the in the window so everybody can see it and could order it directly. Thank you. Because I know you'd ask me to do that, and and of course we put both the links. We put the links to uh, two of your books in the announcements, and they're looking at a web page right now that allows them to order directly. We would like to support you. We'd like to have you make six million dollars. Thank you. Good luck. And uh, yeah, it's it's been my pleasure. And, and I think our paths will cross. Again. If you need anybody to come film you over two days, five hours a day, I think we'll have dozens of volunteers. <laughs> all Thank right, you, John. Night, Thanks, all. everybody, for coming. What a delight. So, so appreciated. John, when you're done, just hang up. Then there's lots of clapping. Thanks for those of you who stuck around. Boy, that was a fascinating treat, and he was sure generous with his time. Uh, I just want to, I'm going to put up the appreciations for C. Bloom and Associates and Learn Central, and also the list of the events coming up next week. So please, uh, please know that I appreciate that you you hung in there, and uh, and I hope it's okay that I didn't stop him, and and I believe we'll listen to this recording later. But um, I think. I'm very interested to hear this dialogue continue. Thanks, and have a great night. That's the, that's the material from, well, you know, I do have the um, uh, high tech high. He is coming on in September. 
but I don't know. I didn't know the form. I'd love a contact there if you've got one. 